Oh, welcome to my place. I love this place. This is my place. You're my people. And uh, Happy New Year to everyone. Just had first class and I'm all fired up and charged because they're keen and they want to learn and they want more, not less, uh, which is pretty exciting for me. Um, I, I hope I have more to give, <laughs> not less, but uh, we'll find a way to make some of these things happen. Anyway, it's always an honor uh, and a privilege to bring the first word of the year to the community. And as I thought about uh, what we needed to be thinking about together at the outset, I couldn't help but uh, come to this topic. And uh, I've intentionally called it Blessed Deconstruction. Um, this, this sermon uh, could probably be 10 sermons, I recognize, but uh, uh, hang with me here and we'll, we'll, I think, get somewhere where we need to be in our thinking and in our um, understanding today. I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart for all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Amen. Well, it was 1967, the year of flower power, Woodstock, and the 100th, 100th birthday of the still as yet emerging country of Canada. It was also the year I emerged onto the scene. On the surface, things looked like progress. Well, especially with my arrival on the scene, you have to admit. Things looked like modernism. But you know, across the pond in Paris, something was cooking. And keeping company with thinkers like Levinas and Foucault, a young scholar named Jacques Derrida published three books all at once. Drawing from the philosophers Nietzsche, Heidegger, and Hudser, Derrida named his project Deconstruction. It was the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Modernism was fermenting. In philosophy, the idea of foundations and first principles, uh, which everyone could reasonably agree on, those were crumbling. And Derrida argued that there was no room for the divide that had typically existed between singularity, that is an embodied event happening in the here and now, and inorganic dead universality, that is the mechanical repetition of laws and principles that are defined as essence. What appears to us is real and can no longer be placed in a lower hierarchy to essence as perhaps the Platonists had done. Deconstruction then lays bare hidden agendas, power grabs, institutionalization and legalization of injustice. Deconstruction allows us to see that there is a text behind the text 
not only in the work and the agendas of others, but ourselves as well. We think in a context, our perspective forever influenced by the past and the future pushing in on us. Context then, lived, real, present, practical life, this is our only window to essence. They can't stand apart. And here it is argued we have a distinct shift to imminence. So God can't be any more real than our experiences of God are real. In the hierarchy uh, that, that sought to be deconstructed or that Derrida seek to deconstruct, our experiences are the only way we know anything. And our tradition shapes our experiences. Deconstruction then critiques the story, prioritizes what we see over what we have perhaps in the past presumed to be real. We realize we have often believed in our own belief. And when we deconstruct that belief, faith has been that has been misplaced begins to fall apart, also begins to crumble. We throw away God, who is essence, rather than thinking through the deconstruction process. Deconstruction can lead us to pull apart our belief system and even ourselves. And as our perceptions shift, and we wonder, who am I? And what do I really believe? Fast forward to 2018, where in an edition of the Christian Post, Lisa Gungor, Life of Christian Band and Church Leader Michael Gungor, recounted their trek away from conservative Christianity and discussed their flirtation with atheism. They were tired of simplistic answers to some of life's toughest questions. After many years in the church, Lisa realized later after a visit to the concentration camps in Europe that like her husband, her perception of faith had always been a transaction. If I'm good enough or I pray enough or I believe enough, then I get blessings and I get a baby or a good life. And that's not how life is, she writes. They walked away from the form of faith that had nurtured them, celebrated them and raised them to fame. Their faith was deconstructed. In July of that same year, the news, uh, the very same news outlet reported the falling away from faith of Josh Harris, uh, pastor, gospel coalition leader, speaker who wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And raising a generation of conservative young people on a particular form of dating, Harris apologized for writing his book as he announced his divorce from his wife and his loss of faith. In his Instagram post, following his divorce, he wrote this, the information that was left out of our announcement is that I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. I disagree with him on that. But all, by all measures I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me there's a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I am not there now. Not long after, Marty Sampson, worship music leader with Hillsong, announced his struggles with faith. Though he later clarified he wasn't exactly walking away, it's clear that he was finding himself on shaky ground. And in his social media post, he writes, This is a soapbox moment for, for this is a soapbox moment. So here I go. How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. <laughs> I don't know where he is. How many miracles happen? Not many. 
No one talks about it. Again, he's not here. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love yet send 4 billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. We do in my class. Christians can be most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful, loving people, but it's not for me. I'm not in anymore. I want genuine truth, not just the I believe it kind of truth. And science keeps piercing the truth of every religion. Lots of things help people change their lives, not just one version of God. I've got so much more to say, but for me, I'm keeping it real. Unfollow if you want. I've never been about living my life for others. All I know is what's true to me right now. Singularity. And Christianity just seems to me like another religion at this point. I could go on, but I won't. Love and forgive, absolutely. Be kind, absolutely. Be generous and do good to others, absolutely. That doesn't sound like singularity. Some things are good no matter what you believe. Let the rain fall and the sun will come up tomorrow. We think we're untouched by philosophical developments. The echoes are all around us. We read, we've read many of these stories in recent years, and we heard many more regaled in the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Fascinating listen, uh, which you probably get bored of by at least the sixth episode. But many young leaders are struggling to understand what's happening to their inherited traditions and how to hang on to their faith in the midst of sharing similar struggles. When the system is corrupt and God doesn't turn up when you need him, in the way that you expect to bless you rather than curse you, what are you supposed to do? You do what the new atheists encouraged you to do. Let go, let go. You'll hardly notice the drop, Hitchens used to say. I can't help but read these accounts and believe profoundly that most of them have had a completely inadequate view of God. And that's what they're walking away from. They're walking away from traditions and from structures that obscured rather than revealed God. That were based on those wider examples rather than on an encounter with God in the everyday. And making the category mistake of equating God with their belief. And so I have to say, perhaps letting go of this inadequate God is not such a bad thing. Usually when there's such deconstruction and disorientation, it's because you have a wrong view of God. And the spirit of God is at work, replacing your own fragile constructions with something deeper and far more solid. Consider the situation of Friedrich Nietzsche, famous atheist philosopher and, and father of postmodernism. He got deconstructed. As a youngster in school, Nietzsche was expected to follow his father into church ministry. He was happy with this, and at age 12, as a fervently religious young man, he beheld a vision of God in all his glory and decided to dedicate his life forever to his service. In everything he wrote, God has safely led me as a father leads his weak little child. I have firmly resolved within me to dedicate myself forever to his service. May the dear Lord give me strength and power to carry out my intention and protect me on life's way. Like a child, I trust in his grace. He will preserve us all. No misfortune may befall us, but his holy will be done. All he gives, I will joyfully accept. Happiness and unhappiness, poverty and wealth, and boldly look even death in the face, which shall one day unite us all in eternal joy and bliss. Yes, dear Lord, let thy face shine upon us forever. Amen. Would you ever think that was a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche? <laughs> but notice this, 
Like a child I trust in his grace, he will preserve us all, that no misfortune may befall us. What on earth could have gone so badly wrong in Nietzsche's life to lead him to famously declare the death of God? His most recent biographer perhaps has the answer. Sue Prideaux writes not only on his experiences of grief nor of mental illness to account for this shift. Instead, she highlights a significant flaw in Nietzsche's view of God. She writes this, even in the grip of his rather, un, as of his rather conventional religious enthusiasm, he was concealing an extraordinary heresy in his private thoughts. It's a basic tenet of the Christian faith that the Holy Trinity consists of God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. But 12-year-old Nietzsche could not stand the irrationality of this construction. His reasoning pushed up a different Holy Trinity. She quotes Nietzsche, When I was 12 years old, I conjured up for myself a marvelous trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Devil. My deduction was that God, thinking himself, created the second person of the Godhead. But to be able to think himself, he had to think his opposite, and thus had to create it. That is how I began to philosophize. Now, we could be led to think that philosophy is the enemy, then, of biblical Christianity, but that's not my point here. The point is that the best explanation for Nietzsche falling away from traditional Christianity is a fundamentally flawed view of God. It was his false belief, not the reality of God, that needed deconstruction in Nietzsche's life. Now, for Nietzsche, the flawed view of God was extreme to the point of heresy. What we are witnessing amongst these young leaders today, I think, is the outworking of an inadequate view of God that comes from participation in a corrupt tradition and an incomplete theological education where deconstruction has never been given a part of that process. They've never had the experience of having their own constructions of God challenged, like Nietzsche did not and the support of an encouragement to build up a view of God that is based much more on God's self-revelation than on simply our perceptions of God. What on earth is going on in our culture that yields this fragile faith? Because I don't think it's only a lack of theological education, although surely that is part of it, but I do wonder if it's possible that we too, as part of this culture, are simply vulnerable to a, a wrong picture of God. I believe that McGill philosopher Charles Taylor has part of the answer here. Don't worry, we will get to scripture, you'll see. In the modern age, we have posited God as provider. That is, we've figured out so much about the universe that we don't need God in order to explain how this works. And nor do we need to depend on him for the things we can do for ourselves. God is reduced to the one who is simply there to provide for us with all the things we can't provide for ourselves, and that is all. And anyone who knows me has heard me say this before. This creates a problem with theodicy. If God provides for me, then when he doesn't, and that's the real experience of life, we have two choices. On the one hand, we say he was powerless to do what we expected, and then we don't want to worship that kind of God anymore, and our faith is in crisis. Or we say he could have done what we wanted or expected, and he chose not to do, which makes him a tyrant and not worthy of our worship. You see the problem. In a consumer culture, we've reduced our Heavenly Father to a transactional God who is worthy of our attention only in as much as he heals the people we pray for, blesses the people we bless, and grants success in our ministry. And when he doesn't, what then? Well, we leave our faith far behind. Engaging deconstruction can actually be a catharsis that brings healing. 
Doubt is not the enemy. Deconstruction is not the enemy when it's a wrong view of God that's falling apart. But what we need to rediscover is there is a God bigger, more loving, more majestic than anything we could have conjured up before. And just maybe God's ways aren't our ways or God's thoughts, our thoughts. And just maybe God's at work in the universe in ways that are hard for us to fathom and is worthy of our worship, not because of what he does for us, but simply because he is. He is. He is love. He is holy. He is creator. He is father. He is redeemer. His savior, and he defines our being. We can't simply hold him up like an object of observation, making requests and demands of a genie in a bottle. And so I can't help but think that part of the current problem isn't even just the culture, but part of the problem is us. The culture has so taken hold of our view of God as the people who believe that our faith has become transactional too. And the story we tell is not simply one of faith. Rather, we have been formed by a cultural trans translation of God that's often warped his teaching and obscured his revelation. Consumerism more than charism has shaped our faith world. And this transactional God is perhaps not God at all. But we sell this God, and when he's proved inadequate, we lament lost faith. No wonder churches are declining. For too long, we ask people to say a prayer, buy a ticket to heaven, and God would give them all they wanted along the way. Most of us have realized by now who are still hanging in there that this is an inadequate view of God. But we may not be ready to embrace a fuller biblical view of God because it's, well, costly. And it's uncomfortable. And it's easier to blame culture than ourselves. It's easier to seek out the next program or principle rather than think through our theology. But as long as I've been a theology prof, over 20 years now, I've seen the deconstruction that happens to students studying theology almost always as a necessary blessing. The Bible is full from beginning to end of how the faithful need their faith deconstructed. Time and time again, they need their misperceptions, rebellions, inherited traditions challenged by God himself. Think of the disciples, the Pharisees, Barnabas, Think of Paul, who so earnestly thought he was doing the right thing, zealously, so zealous for his faith, so zealous for God, that he persecuted Christians. His whole faith world deconstructed in the midst of the blindness that struck him when he could no longer see for himself. And when he could no longer see for himself, God broke in and revealed himself to Paul on God's own terms. Paul's letter to the Philippians helps us in this age of deconstruction. Remember, things weren't great for Paul in Philippi, and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel was not nullified by his imprisonment. He didn't say, well, God would let me out of prison, then he'll be God. No, no, God is God, and Paul still finds himself in prison. God was still God, even though everything didn't seem to be well. And he believes their faith will persevere, that the one who began a good work in them will be faithful to complete it. Why does he have this confidence, especially when they've identified with him in his hardship? Won't they get discouraged? Where is God when they need him? Why didn't he protect them from being imprisoned? Why is there no hint of the reduced God here? He doesn't pray for their protection. Paul doesn't. He doesn't pray that they'll be protected or that all will go well. Instead, he prays that their love will grow 
and grow so they will overflow with love. This is a unity among believers. Why, why will they hang in with God in the face of difficulty? Why will they hang together in Christ? Because they have the right view of God here. He prays for them to have knowledge and insight. These two words are important. One is a spiritual knowledge, a knowledge of God, a knowledge of the things of Christ. This is what it is to be in the know spiritually. This is the sort of thing ADC can help you with as students, though it's not the only way to gain knowledge of God, of course. But those who think knowledge is unimportant in Christian service make a grave error. Knowledge of who God is and what he has done in Christ is of essential importance. The kind of knowledge that gives growth isn't just about facts. We grow in proportion to what we know, so says Mathieu. Without knowledge, there can be no progress to maturity. Being a Christian in the know is essentially as every Christian is a student. Quote, to be a Christian, one must come to know the truth. To grow as a Christian is to grow in one's grasp of the truth its breadth and depth. Ignorance is a root cause of stunted growth. So everyone must be a Bible student, but simple facts are not enough. The word translated insight here really relates to discernment, a moral quality that applies knowledge to actions. There's an intellectual or mental side to it and the living of it. And Paul is praying that love will lead them to know and to do the right things. And there's a spirit-enabled quality to all of this. But the connection is clear. You can't do right if you don't know right. When they know God well, they can follow him well as they are led by the spirit. And then? Then they'll be pure and blameless. Again, pure here relates to a quality that should invade the believer's heart and mind. Blameless means without stumbling and giving no offense. So we see a steadfastness in discipleship and unity amongst believers, even when they disagree. Finally, these qualities will yield a harvest of righteousness that God and not we will grow. The fruit of lives surrender to him. Again, Alec Matier writes that Paul does not speak of sudden transformations, traumatic once for all decisions or spiritual experiences and crises. He describes a patient progression as we examine issues in light of scripture and steadily follow the will of God. This isn't necessarily pretty, shiny, glossy, or anything that is very appealing in the Western world. But as philosopher Charles Taylor reminds us, once we've passed through this age, that cultural malaise of having lost God will spread and an awakening could yet come. As we encounter God afresh in the here and now, we see that God is alive. God is active, not simply part of some authoritarian corrupt system that somebody else has really built up around themselves. And so perhaps the biggest question that faces us is, do we believe that God is bigger than our own faith or even the system that helped to birth our faith? Perhaps if we could glimpse it, if we could lift our gaze from our own deconstruction, we might be able to see what God is really doing. Well, let's take the risk then to embrace a blessed deconstruction, to let go of these inadequate views of God, to hold fast to our transformative encounters with Christ, to live into the world that is itself living and active and to help the people in our churches to do the same. Deconstruction is a lifelong 
process. When we recognize that our belief is not the same as God himself, then we need to always be asking, what do I think about you, God? How am I behaving in a way that actually doesn't reflect who you really are? It has to be a lifelong process as we continue to grow and to learn. But it's those misconceptions we're pulling apart. We can't actually pull apart God in God's self. So we let go of those things and let God be God in our lives. And that's what happens to most of us as we come to study theology. So we needn't fear when our beliefs uh, seem to be threatened because God is not threatened. Let go of the things that are not reflective of him and hang on to those transformative experiences in Christ. Deconstruction is a long, lifelong process because growth is a lifelong process. Interestingly, though, for Derrida, everything needs to be deconstructed. Ultimately, the greatest thing to deconstruct, he says, is death. Death to death, he says. Well, God, the great deconstructor, is already there ahead of us. Death to death. So may we be deconstructed in our false views and unhealthy traditions, that we may be freed by our knowledge of God and Christ in the way that it's described in this passage to live fully in the guidance and power of the Holy Spirit. And may we be faithful in the disciplines of learning more and more about who God really is. This means asking and encouraging questions, seeking him through prayer and scripture, serving him by serving others within the context of a community, and sometimes resting in the tension when we don't have a ready or quick answer. We can trust that he will bless this pursuit in all of us this term. And so I make the Apostle Paul's prayer, my prayer. This is my prayer. That your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best so that in the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Amen. <laughs>